chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. I'm thankful that uh, last time I was here, Pastor Kyle had me preach from 40 or 50 verses, and now I only have to preach for four verses, so thankful for that. Uh, And we are continuing, I think Pastor Kyle's been working through the Sermon on the Mount, Um, so we're continuing that study today. And uh, the text we're looking at, just to give you a a quick introduction to it before we read it and dive into it a little bit, uh, this text plays a really important function in the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. This is kind of the the first um, introduction to the main body of the Sermon on the Mount, but this is also a really important passage in the Bible for understanding the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, a perplexing question that maybe some of you are asking, um, including how we should even understand the role of the law today. So it's an important passage, and with that said, hear now the word of the Lord, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. I'll be reading out of the ESV. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, earlier in the week, my wife, Lori, uh, shared with me a a really interesting study, some research on a study that was performed about 10 years ago on a particular issue in higher education. Uh, The study focused on the amount of time that students in post-secondary institutions, that's colleges and universities, typically spend outside of class in their studies. Now, you may be aware that the traditional advice that's given to college students um, for a long time now has been that you should expect to spend about two to three hours per week outside of class in your studies for every credit hour you take. So doing the math, if you were taking 15 credit hours, you should expect to study for something like 15 or sorry, something like 30 to 45 hours per week outside of class. But what this study found was that while uh, students generally spent that amount of time studying outside of class back in the 1960s, by the early 2000s, there was a steep drop-off in virtually all majors and in all universities. Students were, in fact, spending far less time devoted to their studies, something like 10 hours total for 15 credit hours. And yet most students were still coming away from their classes with A's. Now, in the end, there were a number of reasons probed to explain that trend, uh, but the almost inescapable conclusion that the study reached was that the standards expected of students today have, by and large, tend to fallen off over the years. Now, whatever you make of that study, or, or maybe studies like it, when we come to our passage this morning, we see that Jesus is actually speaking into a related kind of problem. And that is the problem of lowering the standards that God requires of us. In Jesus' own day, this was a problem among the scribes and Pharisees, and we'll encounter that explicitly when we look at verse 20. But this same problem of lowering the standards of God is is one that faces us often today too. Understand that it's always been the, the bent of the human heart to lower God's standards. Sometimes when we sense a tension between what God calls virtuous and what our world calls virtuous, well, we tend to lower God's standards to make them more palatable 
to us as we live as exiles and sojourners in this world. Or, or other times, we hear the standards of what God requires for us, and, and we're rightly concerned with, with wanting to follow those standards, but we don't go deep enough. We don't focus on the internal matters of the heart. We stay far too superficial in our approach to God's law and his commandments. Nonetheless, whatever the ways in which we might be tempted to lower the standards that God requires of us in our own lives, we're reminded in our passage that God's standards are in fact high. And we can't lower the bar, we can't lower the standards to to appease our often pricked consciences when God's high standards expose our sin. And yet we're also reminded that though the standards of God's law remain high for us today, Jesus Christ fulfills the law. And that's our big idea this morning. Jesus Christ fulfills the law. And of course, we'll fill out just what that means as we work through our passage. So as we work through the text, um, I have two points and a number of sub-points, all of which are in your bulletins, which you can look at if you're curious. Uh, But to summarize, we're basically looking at this passage in two parts. First, we're looking at Jesus's work of fulfillment in verses 17 through 18, and then in verses 19 through 20, the church's calling to faithfulness. In summary, first, we're looking at what Jesus does, and then second, what that means for you and me. And then we'll finish off our study of this passage with some contemporary application, if you will. So first, let's let's see what Jesus says about his own mission as the one who fulfills the law and the prophets. So this is our first point, Jesus' work of fulfillment. Now, unfortunately, it's true that throughout um, both the history of scholarship and even among some of our neighbors, there have been a number of ways throughout history in which Jesus's mission and purpose, what Jesus came to the earth to do, have been misunderstood. For example, some would claim that Jesus's mission and purpose, that the reason Jesus came to earth was simply to show us how to love each other, so that we would ask ourselves in any given situation, what would Jesus do and do the same? In other words, some of our neighbors may think of Jesus's mission as only that of giving us an example that we would strive to emulate in our own lives. And then there are other misunderstandings that assume Jesus was primarily a a radical social pioneer who endeavored above all else to overturn the prevailing structures of the society of his day. Understand that there are countless ways in which Jesus' mission and purpose have been and continue to be misunderstood. But for as many misunderstandings of Jesus and what he came to do that exist in our world today, there were similar misunderstandings that were also widespread in Jesus' own day. For example, there were some who saw in the Gospels Jesus' Sabbath activity or his approach to people who would have been considered ceremonially unclean, and concluded, wrongly, that Jesus was pushing aside everything that God instructed his people about in the Old Testament in favor of a new law, or a new standard, or a new program, sharply divorced from anything that went before. And yet, right at the outset of our passage, Jesus corrects some of those misunderstandings that exist in our own day, and that existed in his day, too, by communicating for us an essential continuity between the Old Testament scriptures and Jesus' own ministry. Again, he says in verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, whatever Jesus means here by fulfill, and we'll get into that in just a moment, it can't mean that Jesus is, is somehow completely throwing aside the Old Testament along with all the laws that are contained in the Old Testament. 
And it can't mean that Jesus is now rendering the entire Old Testament irrelevant. Both of those conclusions would be a misunderstanding of Jesus' mission and purpose. But before we ask what Jesus does mean then when he says that he fulfills the law and prophets, we have to back up just for a moment and ask the question, what are the law and the prophets? We'll understand that throughout the New Testament, these words are often used together as a shorthand way of referring to the Old Testament as a whole. Uh, The law and prophets were two of the major sections of the Old Testament. And so when Jesus states that he fulfills the law and the prophets, he's making a claim. He's making, in fact, a very bold claim in claiming how he relates to the Old Testament as a whole. In summary, to claim that he fulfills the law and prophets, Jesus is claiming that everything we find in the Old Testament scriptures reaches its fulfillment, reaches its ultimate realization in his person and work. So, in every promise we find in the Old Testament, we find quite a bit of them, Jesus claims here that those promises are all tributaries that flow into his one person. He makes sense of those promises. And we, as the people of God, receive those promises only by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. As it relates to all the various leaders of the Old Testament church we encounter in the Old Testament, people like Joshua and Moses and David, Jesus' claim of fulfillment implies that all of those leaders are types who point to the better leader of the church, Jesus Christ. And then as it relates to the great anticipation in the Old Testament of a new covenant that bursts through the prophets of the Old Testament, where Jesus promises, or the Lord promises the church of the Old Testament that one day, quote, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That really important new covenant promise that we encounter in Ezekiel 36, that too is inaugurated, comes to its realization in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so far from abolishing the Old Testament or rendering the Old Testament irrelevant, Jesus is telling us here, and of course he demonstrates elsewhere, that he's the final act in this great drama of redemption that started in Genesis and worked its way all the way through Malachi. But as Jesus continues in this passage and then into the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, we see that Jesus' focus narrows very specifically to one aspect of the Old Testament scriptures, and that is how Jesus Christ fulfills all of the commandments of God that are found in the Law of Moses. Now understand that if we were to go back to the Old Testament, and specifically the first five books of the Old Testament, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we would encounter a number of commandments and prohibitions. If you're doing a Bible reading plan right now, maybe you're just perplexed right now because you're coming across all those commandments and you're not quite sure how to make sense of all of them. Uh, In Jewish tradition, they maintain that there are something like 613 commandments in the uh, first five books of Moses. And there are some commandments that when we read them, they're pretty easy to understand. Think of the Ten Commandments where we're commanded, do not steal and do not murder and do not commit adultery. Those are pretty easy for us to understand, although, as I'm going to argue later, I think sometimes we might uh, misunderstand them and not going deep enough into them, but they're pretty easy for us to understand. 
And then there are other commands that are harder for us to understand among the 613 commandments. Things like we find in Leviticus 11, where the Lord tells us that some sea creatures are clean, ones with scales, for instance, and other sea creatures are unclean. How do we work through when we encounter the diversity of commandments that we encounter in the Old Testament, and specifically in Leviticus, for example? Well, in the New Testament, and this is also reflected in our uh, confessional standards for our denomination, the Westminster um, Confession of Faith, Larger and Shorter Catechism, we're taught that all of these 613 commandments in the Old Testament, some of which are admittedly quite perplexing, can be divided into three parts. Some of the laws from the Old Testament are considered civil laws or judicial laws that were binding only on the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. They were laws that were given for a particular period of time to a particular period, uh, uh, to a particular people in order to govern their lives as a nation. Then in addition to the civil ceremonial laws, there were ceremonial laws as well, which governed sacrifices and food that you could eat and shouldn't eat. And then in addition to the ceremonial law, there was the moral law. And the moral law is basically everything we find in the Ten Commandments. So why do I mention these three categories of law, civil, ju civil, judicial, and then ceremonial, and then moral? Well, because when Jesus Christ talks here about fulfilling the law in our passage, we have to understand that claim in view of these categories of commandments. And so, for example, as it relates to the ceremonial law, Jesus' claim of fulfillment means that all of those complex commandments about cleanliness, clean and unclean animals, and temple sacrifices, all of those commandments are filled up in him, the perfect sacrifice, who puts an end to all sacrifices, and who really makes unclean things at a spiritual level clean. So that when Jesus Christ comes on the scene, we're no longer obligated as the church today to follow the ceremonial law. This is why we can eat barbecue pulled pork, one of my favorite foods, um, and lobster, for example, surf and turf, some things that would uh, be prohibited according to the ceremonial law. But when we turn to the moral law, again, when I say moral law, think the Ten Commandments here, Jesus' claim of fulfillment doesn't release us today from following the moral law. All ten of the commandments still remain binding on us as the church today. So when we say that Jesus fulfills the moral law, we mean it in the sense that Jesus was perfectly obedient to it, in thought, word, and deed, when we have fallen dreadfully short of what God demands of his people. I like how the theologian Herman Ruderbos puts it on this. Ritterboss writes, quote, Jesus ensures that the moral law receives the full obedience that is its due to bring fully to light its true and deepest meaning. And this will be clear, especially as Pastor Kyle takes you through the passages next week uh, in, in Matthew chapter 5. So Christ fulfills the law. But what does that mean for us today then? Well, first, let me briefly mention what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that even though some of those most obscure parts of the Old Testament, such as the ceremonial law that we read, it doesn't mean that those laws, even though we don't follow them anymore, it doesn't mean that they have nothing to teach us today. Sure, we don't follow the ceremonial law. We don't follow the civil law of the Old Covenant. And yet they still teach us many, many things today. As Calvin rightly notes, God enjoined ceremonies in the Old Testament that their outward use might be temporal, that they wouldn't be permanent, but that their meaning would be eternal. So although we no longer have bloody sacrifices at an altar in the church service, 
nor do we have cleanliness codes or uncleanliness codes. Those ceremonial laws still picture for us when we come across them in the Old Testament, the need for holiness that God requires of his people. And more importantly, the need for a perfect sacrifice in order to make us right before God. And then second, as it relates to the moral law, Jesus's fulfillment claim means not that we're no longer obligated to follow the Ten Commandments, because we are, but even though we follow the Ten Commandments and we find ourselves every day failing to follow them as we should, we're reminded that when Jesus fulfills the moral law and we put our faith in Jesus Christ, that his perfect record of righteousness, his perfect record of obedience becomes ours so that we can draw near in faith with boldness and assurance and truly be the people of God. So when Jesus tells us in verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Well, we should understand that important claim in view of this distinction. All the law, all 613 commandments are relevant. All of them are important. But whereas the ceremonial law has been completely filled up in Christ, it's no longer binding on us today, the moral law, the demands of the moral law, the often high demands of the moral law, are still required of the church until the end of the age. But before we move on to the next point, and, and we hear more about what this means for us today and how we should think of this as a, in applying it to our lives, uh, understand that Jesus' words here about the abiding significance of the moral law also teach us something really important about God. Understand that these commandments that we read in the Old Testament, especially the Ten Commandments, uh, they aren't arbitrary. These aren't random things that God is a stickler and just wants to hammer down upon his church. No, rather, these are standards that reflect the character of God. And, and their unchanging nature, the fact that the moral law remains consistent throughout all time, points us, first and foremost, to the unchanging nature of the God we worship. Friends, while our approach to the commands of God often ebbs and flows, it's often imperfect at best, and, and, and we often lower the standards that God requires of us, we have a God who doesn't change towards his promises nor towards his people. Instead, we have a God who's rich in mercy towards us in Jesus Christ, a, a God who guards us infallibly in Christ Jesus until the end, and a God who is patient towards us in our growth in Jesus Christ. Yes, God's standards do not change, but neither does the character of the God who issues these demands for his people. And that, friends, is very, very good news. So with these important things about Christ and how Christ fulfills the law in mind, let's hear what Jesus tells us in the second part of our passage as it relates to our calling in the church towards faithfulness. And uh, let me first read for us again as we move on to our second point from verses 19 through 20. Just to reorient us to where we are. Here's what we're reading again. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So again, Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. The entire Old Testament is the one to whom the entire Old Testament points. And specifically, 
Jesus fulfills the ethical commandments of the Old Testament, the, the, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, by being perfectly obedient to every single one of the commandments and thought, word, and deed for us and for our salvation. But now we're reminded of our obligation as Christians, as we live the Christian life, towards the moral law. And the first thing we hear here is that we have a great responsibility in the Christian life in how we approach God's law. Now, as a brief aside, uh, one of the best resources that's out there, if you're interested in studying more of the Ten Commandments and, and hearing more about exactly what's required and what's forbidden in the Ten Commandments, is, is the Westminster Larger Catechism. Uh, if you've ever read through the Westminster Larger Catechism, towards the end, there's a bunch of questions that really fill out for us all of the things that are contained under each one of the commandments. And I think each week when you guys uh, worship and you go through the reading of the law, you're doing the Shorter Catechism's version of those Ten Commandments. But I'd encourage you to meditate over those, to look back over those, and to see just how great this responsibility that God places on his church uh, truly is. But going back to our text, bear in mind, too, that though Jesus emphasizes for us the weightiness of the moral law for, for all of us in verse 19, there's also a specific focus here on those who are assigned a teaching responsibility in the church. Now, we find elsewhere in the New Testament that there's a, a heaviness, a weightiness that attends the teaching ministry in the church. Uh, James, for instance, writes, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. But even if you know the only people that you're tasked with teaching are the, the, the kids in your own home or in your own family, well, there's still an obligation to teach and train your kids up in these great commands of the Lord. As Moses says in Deuteronomy 6, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So how we approach the commandments of God for ourselves and especially as we communicate them to others is important. And according to Jesus here, our attitude towards the Ten Commandments even carries with it eternal consequences. Again, he says in verse 19, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, when Jesus talks here about those who are least in the kingdom of heaven and those who are great in the kingdom of heaven, well, he's probably not speaking about a hierarchy in heaven. Uh, rather, the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is a shorthand way of saying, well, that person doesn't get in to heaven. As Calvin puts it, uh, those who shall pour contempt on the doctrine of the law or on a single syllable of it will be rejected as the lowest of men. Now understand that Jesus isn't teaching us anything like we could earn our salvation by our obedience to his commands. Nothing like that at all. But it is true that though we are justified by faith alone, the faith that justifies is never alone. It's always attended by a heart that desires to be doers of the word and not just hearers. And that's what Jesus' words point us to in this verse and underscoring this great responsibility that we have in studying the commandments of God and the, to the best of our ability and the power of the Holy Spirit appropriating those commands in our lives. But as we continue into verse 20, it would also seem that this great responsibility in the Christian life is framed as an impossible responsibility to uphold. Again, in verse 20, Jesus tells us, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, to someone hearing this in Jesus' context, 
This might sound at first blush like an impossible standard, an impossible demand. Understand that the Pharisees and scribes, those were the moral and biblical savants of the day. To to offer an analogy, this would be like me saying to you that unless your wealth exceeds that of Elon Musk, you will never be financially secure. And yet, the kind of righteousness that Jesus calls his disciples to, including you and me, is a kind of righteousness that's far deeper than that of the scribes and Pharisees. And to pursue that kind of righteousness that Jesus calls us to in this passage, you can't play the same game as the scribes and Pharisees. You have to play it on completely different terms. About uh, 10 years ago, um, you may remember the the movie Moneyball came out, which is based on the story of uh, Billy Bean, uh, the executive vice president of the Oakland Athletics. Maybe some of you saw that movie. And as the story goes, uh, the Oakland A's back in 2001 had, had just finished a relatively successful season, although they lost all of their best players after the 2001 season. And they didn't have anything close to the financial muscle to compete with powerhouses like the New York Yankees and, and the Boston Red Sox, teams as a Baltimore Orioles fan I despise, but nonetheless. Um, so rather than trying to compete with those teams on their own terms, Bean mixed things up. And with the help of others, he pioneered an analytical and statistical approach to baseball like nothing that was ever previously done. Now, although their approach didn't produce a World Series title and still hasn't to this day, in the season immediately after losing all their best players, they were still able to win the same amount of games as the New York Yankees, the the biggest spenders in baseball. But it only cost the A's some $260,000 per win where it cost the Yankees $1.4 million per win, a huge success that had ripple effects throughout baseball even to this day. When I think about that, that, that story, I think there's an analogy in that to what Jesus calls his disciples to pursue in this text. Understand again that they can't, we can't pursue righteousness in the same way that the scribes and Pharisees were pursuing righteousness who were only concerned with external righteousness or a superficial righteousness. They were only concerned with outward appearances. And as Jesus will make clear as we work through Matthew 5, or as Pastor Kyle brings you through it in later weeks, the greater righteousness that Jesus calls you and me to embody is an internal righteousness. It's a righteousness that just doesn't play the same game as the scribes and Pharisees. It's a righteousness that doesn't try to compete with the scribes and Pharisees on their own terms. Because it's a righteousness that concerns itself with addressing the motions of the heart and any wrong-headed thinking that might lead to actions. And more importantly, it's also a greater righteousness because it rests on Jesus's greater righteousness out of an apprehension that we could otherwise not be righteous at all on our own. Understand that though God calls us to shape our lives according to his commandments, and we should strive to do that in as much as we're able to, our obedience will always fall short of the glory of God. And so the only hope that we have of entering into the kingdom of heaven is if we're resting on Jesus Christ's righteousness alone, who by grace alone, through faith alone, takes upon himself our record of sin and guilt and gives to us his perfect record of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. This is our only hope, our only comfort in life and death to receive the righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ, that comes from outside of ourselves. That's our only hope in life and death. 
So how else should we think of this passage as we prepare to close? Well, I have three applications, three specific things for us to take away from this text before we prepare to come to the table and taste and see that the Lord is good. First application is this. Don't water down the moral law of God. Don't water down the moral law of God. About uh, 12 years ago or so, I was doing um, some street evangelism as part of a college ministry in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And one of the questions we asked people as we dialogued with random strangers on the street was whether or not they could tell us anything about the Ten Commandments. Uh, now, most of the people we spoke with weren't able to list all the Ten Commandments, but when we started talking about them, almost everyone, regardless of faith background, seemed to have a generally favorable opinion of them. Most people thought that the prohibitions against murder and theft and adultery were generally good things. And although times have changed, even in just a decade or so, and admittedly we were in the Bible Belt when we were having some of these conversations, I would bet that most people you talk to today would in general think that what we find in the Ten Commandments is generally speaking a good thing to strive after. And yet the problem, for the most part, isn't that we tend to outrightly reject God's law as worthless. Our problem is that when we come to the commandments of God, we don't go deep enough. And sometimes we even find ourselves redefining or reshaping the commandments or watering them down to suit ourselves. Friends, the human heart just doesn't like to be pricked. And our three sworn enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, are always at work against God's purposes to convict us of our sin and to drive us to Christ. And so as much as we might seek to justify ourselves by reframing or redefining or watering down the Ten Commandments, the better approach is to rest first and foremost on Jesus Christ's greater righteousness, to know that we have security as the people of God in Christ, and then out of that, to let God's law prick your heart a little bit, because you are dearly beloved, even as the Lord calls us to repentance and faith and sanctification in the Christian life. So that's the first application, the first takeaway. Don't water down the law of God. Second is this. Pursue God's law for the right reasons. As much prayer and repentance is involved in pursuing God's commands, it's also true that sometimes we can find ourselves stumbling into obedience to the letter of the law here and there. Although adultery, for example, involves far more than just uh, being unfaithful to your spouse, it's true that on the surface of things, uh, in the most superficial way, we could stumble into obedience to that commandment. Uh, similarly, although murder involves far more than just killing someone, the larger catechism talks about how anger, for example, is, a, is one way in which we violate that commandment. Uh, it's also true that most of us here have probably never murdered someone and thus, at least superficially, we stumbled into obedience to that commandment. But even so, that doesn't mean that we've obeyed the law perfectly, especially as God calls us, if we're not obeying it for the right reasons. I like how Dan Doriani puts it. He writes this. He says, true righteousness shows itself when disciples do the right things for the right reasons. The world is full of people who never did anything really bad, but only because they never had a chance. Jesus expects his disciples to do the right things for the right reasons, not out of a fear of calculation, but out of love for God and man. So ask yourselves, what drives you to obedience in the Christian life? What drives you to pursue the commandments as God would have us live out? What drives that pursuit of godliness in your own life? Is it love of God or is it something else entirely? 
And kids, this would be a good question to ask yourself too, especially when we think of, of what we're requiring in the fifth commandment, that is to honor our fathers and mothers. As crazy as that might seem to you at times when your father and mother are getting on your nerves, know to honor father and mother is also to honor God. So when you have trouble honoring mom and dad, let that be the motivation that drives you to obedience. So that's the second application. Pursue God's law for the right reasons. And when you find the right reasons wanting in your life, ask the Lord, ask the Spirit to transform your heart and to bring those right reasons into your heart. Third application is this. Let God's law drive you to Christ, the only one who can make us righteous before God. Much of what Jesus gets at in this passage, uh, and even on the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, is what we would refer to as the third use of the law. And these things are laid out in the Westminster Standards, if you have any questions about that. Um, but when we talk about the third use of the law, we mean that the law is designed in our lives to be um, something that we're commanded to pursue as Christians. We're commanded to obedience, to be obedient to, to the Lord as much as we're able to, because it's for our good and it's pleasing to God when we do so. But in addition to the third use of the law, the law also has an other function in the Christian life, too. Not only are we called to obey it because it's very good when we do so, but the law is also designed to drive us towards Jesus out of an apprehension of the ways that we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sometimes this is known as the second use of the law. And the way it works is that when we hear God's demands we should pursue them, yes, but we should also recognize how far we fall short of the glory of God. And because the Lord expects perfection and nothing short of perfection will do, we need a mediator before anything else who's been perfectly faithful to the law on our behalf. This is what the Heidelberg Catechism um, gets at in question and answer 115 when it asks the question, if in this life no one can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, which is true, why does God have them preached so strictly? And it answers first, that throughout our lives, we may be more and more uh, aware of our sinful nature and therefore seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. And second, that we may be zealous for good deeds and constantly pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit that he may more and more renew us after God's image until after this life, we reach the goal of perfection. Now, I'll encourage you to read that on your own. That's 115, question and answer 115. And there's a lot of rich truths packed into that question and answer. But the main takeaway of that is this. Let the law of the Lord drive you to a greater dependence on the lawgiver, who's not only a lawgiver, but is also the God who keeps every single one of his promises in Jesus Christ and who invites you and me, because he's kept the commandments perfectly, to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you pronounce in your word. We thank you that you've given us the law, not to, uh, not to, not to stamp us down or to, to show us how much we're failures and that's it, but rather you've given us this law to first drive us to Christ and then second, uh, to pursue in the power of the Holy Spirit because this is good and this glorifies you in the process. Lord, I pray that when we're cold to the word of the Lord or when we're cold towards your commandments, that you would soften our hearts and you would drive us to deeper dependence on you and a deeper desire to pursue your law. For Christ's sake, in Christ's name we pray. Amen.